The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Vera Krizchik. She is a tenured faculty member in the Entomology Department in the College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences at the University of Minnesota. She obtained her Ph.D. from the University of Maryland and continued on as a postdoc at the New York Botanical Garden. Since 1998, Dr. Krizchik has been director of the Center for Sustainable Urban Ecosystems that promotes sustainable landscapes and conservation of beneficial insects. Her lab studies the interaction of pests, pollinators, and predators in landscapes, and her research and extension objectives are reducing insecticide use, to ensure human and ecosystem health. I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Krizchik speak at the 35th Annual Beyond Pesticides Forum in Minneapolis and wanted her to be our guest today. So welcome, Dr. Krizchik. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Well, I want to talk about our pollinators because, as you so well know, they are in trouble. And we are so dependent on pollinators, native pollinators, bees, etc., for the food that we have on our plates. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you became interested in studying pollinators, and then we can go forth from there. Well, I've always been interested in ecology and evolution, and insects are small, they're manipulable, so you can do experiments with them. And if you kill them with a pesticide, I don't have as much remorse. I could never kill a mammal or a bird. So they allow me to look at these ecosystem effects of pesticides on the different organisms, on biodiversity, and how these organisms interact as populations and communities. So they're a good unit for studying ecology and evolution. I got particularly interested in pesticides and bees and beneficial insects because the USDA supported the adoption of a new way of managing pests both in agricultural fields and landscapes, and it was called IPM, Integrated Pest Management. And it offers different tools that you're supposed to first use before you use pesticides. And some of those are increasing plant health, increasing soil health, and a lot of it is to maintain the good bugs. So the good bugs kill the bad bugs for us, but when you're out of control and you just rely on pesticides, which is what we did back in the 50s. You create problems and you kill your good bugs, your pollinators, your beneficial insects, and you become more and more pesticide-reliant. And it seems like even though we're really pushing IPM, we have that potential again for that to happen. So that was what got me interested. Everybody's deeply involved in registering the chemical companies and registering non-toxic pesticide alternatives and testing these in the environment to see if they do preserve beneficial insects and bees. So that's where my interest is, to look at how our management practices actually are affecting IPM, our ability to um, maintain biodiversity in urban and rural landscapes. 
Mm-hmm. You bring up a really important point, and that is beneficial insects. And it's been my experience that we see bugs generally as bad. If there's a bug, kill it. We don't really understand how each of the different species functions within the larger ecosystem. And so we think, let's just kill them all. We want a bug-free environment. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Yeah, so the story really is 99% of insects are good. They're, without insects, we would be up to our eyeballs in detritus. They recycle plants and leaves and animal waste and animals themselves. And they're involved in eating each other, which you know helps us reduce pesticide use. And then pollinators, obviously, are important in making seeds and fruit. So I like to start out by talking about the evolution of flowering plants. About 150 million years ago, we started to get magnolia, tulip tree kind of plants. And their flower morphology had a flower on it, had an ovule, it had male and female parts. And it was different than the conifers and the spruce trees or the pine trees. And at that time, 150 million years ago, when these flowering plants started to radiate, and like I said, the magnolias, the tulip trees are some of the early ones, insects had been on land already for 250 million years. And so they started to radiate. And without insects, we wouldn't have flowers or without few other pollinators like sunbirds in Africa or hummingbirds in Central America, North America, South America. So by far, there are some marsupial pollinators, there are bird pollinators, but the largest set of pollinators are insects, and they helped co-evolve with plants. And the nectar that's produced, the pollen that's produced, all of it is a co-evolution between good bugs to help plants move their pollen to new individuals. And in that process, they develop the color and form and aroma to attract insects. So Darwin pointed it out. He became very aware of the fact in the tropics, you have these lianas, these tropical vines, and these huge bumblebee-like creatures that they're not bumblebees, but they're very large pollinators as well. And they're all involved with these intimate co-evolved association with flowers, and sometimes the flower is even shaped like a bumblebee. So Mm. all of that translates to we need to respect that all those flowers we admire on Mother's Day or on our holidays are the result of co-evolution of insects, and only because we hear about insects in the negative sense, when they're hurting a tree in our backyard or grubs are eating the roots of turf, do we become aware of it? But usually they're out there doing their job, moving pollen and nectar, killing bad bugs, and we really don't have an appreciation for that is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I received a flyer from, they call themselves True Green now, but they had been called Chemlon. And I received a flyer from them. You know, they were going to come over and treat my lawn. And the first thing I thought of was how will this impact all of the species that live underground, how will this affect the birds and the bees and the butterflies that I want to come to my landscape? So as an urban gardener or as a suburban gardener, how do we do the best we can in terms of promoting a more biodiverse landscape so that we can have all the pollinators that we need in our fruit and vegetable gardens? Well, I think it is possible. I think there are a lot of really talented, dedicated people 
doing research, um, doing outreach, trying to get word out there how you can do this. And the word that's commonly used is organic or sustainable backyards. And the focus is on increasing the health of the soil. And once you, like turf, top dress the turf with manure, top dress it with compost, aerate it in the fall, use organic fertilizers like millorganite, all of that improves the health of the soil and improves the amount of mycorrhizae, which are fungi that live on the roots of grasses and garden plants, and those all help to prevent diseases. So there are available now commercially through arborists or through land services for turf programs that they'll call sustainable organic that put much more of their effort into improving soil health and therefore improving plant health and putting less inputs of herbicides and insecticides. Mm-hmm. Well, the talk that you gave in Minneapolis was titled Bees, Pollinators, and Biodiversity. And I want to focus our conversation going forward on native bees and honeybees, bumblebees, their role in pollinating our food crops and the risks to our own health as well as the environment in the loss of those bee populations. So what do you attest to the shrinking populations of bees and the this decline in bee populations that we've seen of late? Well, honeybees are managed. They're exotic bees from Europe. They've been cultivated like cows, like cattle, for thousands of years. And then we have native bees, which the most common ones people think are bumblebees. And then there's a lot of these soil-nesting solitary bees that are really important in pollinating your zucchini or your apple plants. And people really, it's under their radar. They don't understand about those at all. Bumblebees sometimes. So what we need to do is to understand when we want diverse crops, when we don't want just the agronomic variety of a crop that's done in monocultures, when you want to grow heirloom tomatoes or heirloom zucchinis in your backyard, you're reliant on pollinators to make those fruits. And lots of times you hear nowadays people aren't getting high fruit production because they are missing pollinators. There is a little specialist native bee that pollinates squash. Bumblebees uh, buzz pollinate. They brush their wings against the stamens of tomatoes to release the pollen. So even though they're below our radar and we don't understand why we're not getting as much of a yield as we need or as our grandmother's got. Some of that is because we don't have the pollinators and we just don't realize we don't have them. And a lot of these ground nesting pollinators need a stable, unaltered ground for a whole year because they go in back in the ground for the winter, they come out in the spring, and lots of times our management techniques keep disrupting the ground and so those pollinators can't exist. So it is a big issue of education to make people understand where you need to do your agriculture, where you need to do your backyard gardening, but we need fallow space for all these native pollinators to subsist in. And I think, you know, years ago there were lots of wood lots, there were lots of vacant lots, there was lots of areas that were not utilized and the insects were there. And now so much of our environment is in use. There's so much space that is occupied by asphalt or it's no longer in weeds and flowering plants and all those places our native pollinators used to live and they can't anymore. So 
Now I think we have to have an understanding of how to coexist with them in our backyard. And the native ones don't sting. So you know, the first thing I always hear from parents is, oh, my kids are going to get stung. And um, that's not necessarily true. And bumblebee queens rarely sting. It's just the workers in the summer if you bother them. But if you don't, you can touch them as they're foraging. And they make a little angry buzz, but they'll go on. Honeybees, wasps are much more aggressive in terms of stinging. So I think through education we can make people aware of how they have to share their backyards and leave uncultivated places for these native bees to exist. Mm -hmm. I have started keeping a little bit of a brush pile alive and well in my backyard just for that purpose. I want there to be places for pollinators to breed, and I also want there to be places, especially to protect the birds. I want lots of birds visiting my yard, and I want those juicy, succulent pollinators and other bugs to have a place for the birds to find food. Well, I think that is a really important concern. The number of insectivorous, insect-eating birds going way down. There are people who do this monitoring in Europe and in North America are noticing it. And you know, everyone always talks about the windshield test, how yes. years ago you drive through rural areas and you had to stop and clean your windshields, and now you hardly get a bug. And that means there's less food for insectivorous birds, or less if the soil health is disappearing, there's less earthworms for robins. So if the ecosystem, the urban ecosystem, isn't retrofitted so it's sustainable, then you are going to affect biodiversity by reducing the food chain for birds. So I agree with you that um, brush piles, compost heaps, those are the places insects are, beneficial insects over winter. A lot of these native bees leave, need sandy soils along the margin of like streams where they put their nests in the ground for years mm. or under your apple tree. And people have to be aware that they see these striped insects coming out of the ground and they're not lost, they're bees. So the first thing I want to say is it's really easy to figure out the difference between wasps and bees. Wasps don't have hairs, and bees are covered with hairs. Oh, interesting. So they both have orange and yellow and white stripes, but if it's fuzzy, it's a bee. And like I said, the native bees that live in the ground don't like to sting you. The bumblebee queens don't want to sting you. Honeybees are more aggressive, but the wasps have a... They have division of labor, and they have a cast that sits at the opening of the nest and comes out and stings people. So ground-nesting wasps are something to worry about. Ground-nesting bees are, are not. That's good to know. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Vera Krischik. She is at the University of Minnesota, where she is the director of the Center for Sustainable Urban Ecosystems, and I had the pleasure of hearing her speak at the Beyond Pesticides Forum in Minneapolis, where her topic was about bees and pollinators in general and biodiversity in the landscape. As a dietitian, I'm very concerned about protecting our bees because I know that a good portion of the foods that we eat and enjoy are dependent on pollinators. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the pesticides in particular and herbicides that might be harming bee populations. Well, you know, the list is long of insecticides. Bees are insects. Insecticides were meant to kill insects, so they kill bees. The EPA has been working very hard with the commercial industry to develop insecticides that are friendlier 
that don't leave as large a footprint, that um, when you spray them, they're metabolized, they disappear right away, so they only work for a short amount of time. Some of them just target the juvenile stage of the pest insect, so they don't hurt the adult insect. There's lots of miticides now, so we used to use insecticides to kill mites. They didn't work very well. Now the EPA has registered all these specific miticides. So there has been a huge input of different kinds of chemical techniques to help preserve biodiversity. The problem is that it doesn't trickle down as fast as it should to the homeowner or to the commercial industry. But, you know, you look at Whole Foods on weekends, you look at the parking lots of organic stores, and they're just packed with people. And I think once people understand how to manage space in a way that can conserve biodiversity, they're going to do that. I'm pretty much convinced of it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that gets me about nutrition and bees is when we have our monocultures, a lot of the effort is on yield, you know, managing yield with a lot of inputs of pesticides and fertilizers. And what the organic people do is they manage the soil profile. I'm hoping that all this organic movement and even in the organic sustainable issues in our backyard that by increasing the sustainability, the um, organic matter, the compost in soils, we're going to increase the amount of nutrients that plants are going to pick up and it's going to make us more healthy. And without the pollinators to move the pollen around from plant to plant, we're not going to get as many fruits. And I think that's documented now that uh, fruit yield goes down very clearly when pollinator diversity and numbers disappear. Well, let's talk a little bit about some very common pesticides in our environment, and those are the neonicotinoids. And I've been interested in them. They're used as seed coatings in conventional agriculture. Sunflower seeds, GMO corn seeds are coated, for example. And what I've learned in looking at some of the research is that the neonicotinoid really leaves the seed It does become part of multiple parts of the plant. It also gets into our waterways and our soil. And if I look at maps, the University of Vermont did a good overview of where we're seeing a lot of the decline in our native bees and some of the big commodity crop growing areas. One can't help but see what looks like almost a a direct impact from the way we are producing commodity crops. And you've got a paper, let's see, this was published in 2014, Chronic Exposure of Neonicotinoids on Queen Survival and Foraging and Nectar Storing. And I wonder if you can talk about your experience in looking at some of these neonicotinoids and how they are harming our bees. Well, besides my research, there is a vast research That's being published every year. Literally thousands of papers are coming out this year in 2017. But historically, you know, maybe back in 1995, there was one paper on the non-target effects of neonicotinoids on good bugs or residue in plants or residue in water. And now, like I say, there's thousands. So I'm not the only one looking at this. There's lots of people, different perspectives looking at how much neonic is in surface water, the effects on the food chain in water, looking at the effects on birds, 
looking at the effects on frogs, looking at what it's doing to the soil and the food chains in the soil. And the thing about the neonics is it's, they're so ubiquitously used. I mean, if you have 100% of the corn and 90% of the soybeans with seed treatments, and as you mentioned by this map, the Midwest is, you know, most of the areas are corn or soybean cultivation. You can imagine from seed treatments and other applications, soil and foliar applications of neonicotinoids, how much residue you're creating in the soil, in the water, in the plants. And so the arguments are, are those residues high enough to kill things? And that's where the arguments always end up. And what I have been studying is the amounts of these chemicals used in urban landscapes is much higher than field crops. Mm. And I just did a study last summer at the University of Minnesota where I put out 30 bumblebee colonies and 15 of them were fed sugar syrup with 20 parts per billion imidacloprid. That's a neonicotinoid. And the others are given controls, just sugar syrup, nothing in it. And they were allowed to forage for the whole summer for their whole life cycle. And it was clear that the ones that were given the 20 parts per billion neonicotinoids, their colonies weren't as big, they didn't produce as many queens. In the summer, this fungus grows from humidity. They couldn't clean the fungus out of their nest. So there are maybe 15 different things we looked at, and of those, at least 10 were statistically impacted by the neonicotinoid. Now, this 20 parts per billion is what is considered the lowest level that affects the it's considered by the EPA as not affecting a bumblebee colony. They consider 25 parts per billion is the lowest level that should affect. But we went down to 2015, and we were still getting these effects. So I think what we're seeing from research is that the, there's a huge difference between what the regulatory agencies like the EPA or state agencies think is the benchmark, the maximum amount that should affect an aquatic community or terrestrial community, and what is really going on. So it's these sublethal effects. And that's a big issue because researchers like myself and these hundreds of others are showing that these sublethal effects are real, but the EPA, when they register compounds, they only look at lethal effects. Right. They don't look at the chronic sublethal effects. So it's actually an argument where everybody wins because if the EPA wasn't looking at it and they registered it, they really don't understand the full impact. And the researchers who are spending their time trying to dissect it out and are doing the work are being able to understand the impacts of sublethal effects. The problem is, is you know, lots of times the regulatory groups don't want to accept the data from the researchers. But more and more is being produced all the time. So that is my message that I would like to go over one more time. It's the sublethal effects. It's the effects at these lower levels that are chronic, that are in the water, that are in the plant, that are persistent, that are showing up as affecting the ability of an insect or a bumblebee, let's say, to maintain its colony so it can't produce the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I think what's going on, you mentioned a survey where they've looked at native bees. I think in Europe they've done this too. Germany has some really good data. The French and the British have really good data on butterflies and insect diversity through time. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happening is 
we are now beginning to see, after 20 years of this ubiquitous neonicotinoid use, the effects of chronic sublethal dosages on populations of everything. Mm. But the regulatory agency, because they look at lethal effects, which is a much different number, um, haven't been able to predict this effect on biodiversity. So it's like we're all talking about different things. Right. Well, and I think that uh, we had had a conversation before the interview where you explained that the, the Canada and the EU are really farther ahead of us oh, yeah. in terms of banning some of the seed treatments. They're farther ahead in that they accepted the data from their scientists. So the European Union has a very manageable process where their state labs produce the data. They have a group that reviews the data. They publish the review, and then they use those papers for legislation. Mm-hmm. We have a decoupled system in the U.S. where our scientific data is not necessarily used by the EPA. They rely more on the data from the chemical companies themselves. The Canadians, for instance, have uh, seed treatments because they're ubiquitously used because the neonicotinoids are getting in surface water. And there's been some really good research in Canada showing that these levels are affecting the aquatic insects that live in water. For that reason, the Canadians, um, Ontario, they have are enforcing a slow removal of seed treatments from agriculture. It started in 2015. And so in Canada, you can now buy non-treated seed, and they want to increase the amount of non-treated seed that's used. Even in the United States, we have multiple reports. I can think, just sitting here, 10 reports where it has been showed that seed treatments may not be economically advantaged. They may not prevent insects from feeding on the crop. They may not be protecting the crop from what people think they're protecting it from. And so seed treatments people kind of talk about a lot because It is so ubiquitously used. It's used, like I said, in all the corn and soybeans and sunflowers and beets. And and if you use even at low levels on all the land mass, it's going to have an impact, right? Mm -hmm. Minnesota, I have to say, I'm really proud to live in this state. We've been very proactive. We have legislation now on the production of plants that are used by beneficial insects for pollen and nectar. And there can't be residues above a small amount. Um, else the plant cannot be labeled as bee friendly and that is a big issue driving to work today I saw two signs from two different groups a, a temple <laughs> and the friends society where they're selling plants that are bee friendly so we've had that legislation we also the governor at the state fair this past August um, has a memorandum of what he would like to see happen in the future in Minnesota, and one of those things is to make non-treated seeds more available to farmers if they'd like to purchase them. Among other things in his memorandum, he created a pollinator committee among state agencies and then one a citizen pollinator community. So our state has been fabulous in trying to fully go through these issues and sort out if there's a way we can both preserve the economics of crop production but also preserve 
biodiversity. Well, that is a positive note to leave us with. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to especially thank my guest, Dr. Vera Krishak, at the University of Minnesota, where she is the director of the Center for Sustainable Urban Ecosystems. Thank you so much for your research and for sharing your time with us today. And thank you so much for caring about beneficial insects and bees. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.